All right, good evening. Let's go ahead and grab a Bible and go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29, verse 18, these are the words of God. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we hope and pray that you will give us understanding of your word. And the reason we ask you is because we know that only you can work that sort of miracle. Would your spirit, who has taken up residence in us, guide us and direct us and make your will known to us in ways that we might not have ever imagined? We ask, uh, God, for the simple fact that we as a nation, we cannot see right now, and thus we, your church, need your light to help us see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight I want to talk about a verse that means a lot to me. It means an incredible amount to me. And the reason that it is important, though, I should confess, has both positive and negative reasons. (laughs) The positive reason for why it is important is, um, you know, a lot of it is due to the fact that I think it teaches something quite profound, as we will see momentarily. Um, Despite the fact that it's really not a well-known verse, other, at least is not as well known as the other verses we've looked at. Uh, it, despite that, it does have a lot to teach us. Now, so the verse also means a lot to me for negative, uh, for a negative reason, and, and that's because of a personal experience. Now, since I don't want to keep you waiting, I'm just going to tell you up front what that negative reason is, so you're not you know, wondering on the edge of your seat. Several years ago, while sitting in his office, I listened to a pastor, my boss at the time, explain this verse in terms of church growth. Um, His argument could be summarized in this way. The Bible says that where there is no vision, the people perish. Therefore, church branding and church vision casting is absolutely essential. Making the Sunday morning experience the best we can is, is absolutely the most important thing we can do. It has to be superb. Um, who, who cares about Monday through Saturday? Sunday is the most important. So we have to have a clear mission statement. We have to talk about the mission statement. We have to obsess about the mission statement over and over and over again. I expect all of you to um, be up at night thinking about the mission statement. And, and <laughs> this is still him talking. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, If there are any old-time naysayers that speak a peep otherwise in this church, we will shut them down with all of our vision casting. Vision, 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 vision. Thrown up all over the place. So that's, that's the understanding. Now, Crossing Crown, we do have a very clear mission statement, so I'm not against that sort of thing. What I'm against is the church growth movement that is clearly a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, This type of thinking about vision and vision casting um, perpetuated by false teachers like Andy Stanley and Stephen Furtick, all of this is nothing more than business marketing on steroids. That's all it is. 
So this verse about vision is quoted ad nauseum, and in these contexts, they ironically leave out the second part of the verse, which if they had any ounce of integrity and exegetical exegetical honesty, um, they would see that their abuse of the text is completely unwarranted and foolish, I might add. So that's the negative reason in a nutshell. Um, I saw a hireling, a fraud of a pastor, use this verse to basically um, stuff and force his haughty agenda on, on people. Now, Proverbs 29.18 is not a verse to use uh, to grow your church business and your church brand. In fact, uh, as, as we'll see, I, I believe the opposite is taught. I would argue that a proper understanding and teaching of this verse would actually shrink most churches. And why is that? Well, because the verse is about the very thing most evangelicals can't stand. And what's that? The law of God. And the law of God in society. Now, before we extrapolate the verse some more, I want to dig in. So let's read it again and just hang tight with me and we'll pick it apart. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Let's start with a few explanatory remarks. The word vision here is the word hazan in Hebrew, and it literally means this: it's a revelatory word. And that word comes from God. Anytime you see that word, that's what it's referring to. So this vision is not a cutesy statement that you craft. This vision is literally the word from God. It's a prophetic vision that's usually dispensed to Israel from from the mouth of her prophets. Hazon, H-A-Z-O-N, to transliterate it, it's the truth about God, it's sent by God, and it's this word that is imposed on man in a supernatural way through, his, through the vehicle of his spirit. In 1 Samuel 3.1, we read this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions, there's our word, were infrequent. So divine oracles from God were rare in those days when Samuel was a young child. The next word in the verse uh, that I want to point out is the word unrestrained. Now the King James Version says that the people perish. The ESV says they translate it cast off restraint. Um, The idea refers to this unbridled lack of restraint, a lack, a complete lack of self-control. Um, To to literally be let loose, to be out of control, to be free, to run naked. It means to run wild. Um, The sentence does not read this way. Where there is no vision curated and crafted by a genius of a senior pastor, the church marketing suffers, the budget suffers, and people leave your local church. Okay, that's not what it says. That's not even close to what it says. Um, but we're more fin- we're, we have uh, more to talk about, and I'll get back to that later. Here's the verse. Where there is no prophetic word from the Lord God, the people run around letting their hair down completely unrestrained and, and undisciplined. You've, you've heard the phrase, letting your hair down. What do we mean by that? Well, you know, it's Friday night, we're going to let our hair down. This idea of just sort of do whatever you want. This, have a good time. Don't, you know, be careless and carefree. Or, to put it in more modern dialect, without God's law, people go ape. (laughs) That's that's the verse. That's what the first part of the verse is saying. 
Um, also, I should add that we actually have a scenario like this in the Bible, something that happened. Without the Word of God, without God's Word, people are naked. They're uncovered. They're unrestrained. They're ashamed. Um, if you recall, Moses, uh, he found the Israelites. He saw the Israelites who were led by Aaron fashioning a golden calf, if you remember the incident. He found them uncovered. Uh, here, listen to Exodus thirty-two twenty-five. It says this, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. This this out of control is the idea here in Proverbs 29, 18. Namely, they had let their hair down. They were uncovered. And sometimes the word is translated naked. Their, Their idolatry caused by a lack of prophetic vision at the moment left them without self-control and restraint. When you don't have God's Word take up supremacy in your life, day after day, you have zero control, you, you lack self-discipline, and you, you just, you're exposed is essentially what the Word means. When there is no ministry of the Word, the prophetic vision of the law Word of God, people are left naked, they're left exposed, and they're left without a defense. They're defenseless. The Word of God is the sword of God, and without it, we are susceptible to danger. So thus, when God's Word is put aside, men are exposed, men are left vulnerable. So listen, get this too. The moment that a man stops repenting is the moment he begins manufacturing idols. The moment a man stops repenting, he lets his guard down, that's the moment he starts manufacturing all sorts of idols to suit him. Now look at the second part of the sentence. But happy is he who keeps the law. This is the convenient part that's left off by the church growth gurus with their church in a box, 10-step process. They sort of forget this second part. Happy is he who keeps the law. The word happy is a share, and it's it's a Hebrew word that you know it as blessedness. You are blessed, right? It's the same... It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1 to describe the, the blessed man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or seat, right, sit in the seat of the scoffer. The person who keeps the law, who loves the law, is the person who is blessed. He's covered, not uncovered. He's clothed, not naked. He, is, he has self-control. He's not ungovernable, which is interesting because um, one translator I found, he translated the verse... Um, as saying, without, without revelation from God, the people become ungovernable. Fascinating thought. The word law in our text is the word Torah. It's used um, 213 times in the Old Testament. It's one of the most essential words in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, that's essentially what you would call the, the Old Testament. It's the Torah, the, the Torah. It's um, the words all about the law of God. It's, um, it's specific to the law of God, the commandments of God, but it's also this sort of general encompassing principle of God's law in a, in a general universal sense as well. In biblical Hebrew, Torah means instruction, but one of the less understood meanings is that it also means direction. The law of God is, it quite literally provides us instruction and it provides us direction. So think about this. A lawless life is a directionless life. 
right? Without, without God's word, without his law, we wander around aimlessly. In other words, God, when we leave God's word, we, we sort of get lost. We, dwat, we doddle, we, we walk away, we do our own things. So what happens, what's to be expected when people leave God's word? When, when they speculate on the goodness of God's law, right? When they, when they explain it away as though, you know, Jesus does not want us to have anything to do with this sort of thing. What happens also in a culture where there is no direction? The answer is simple. Social collapse becomes the norm. Social collapse becomes the norm. Let me summarize this verse again for you with all the word pictures and with all the lexical meanings Uh, in their place. Where no biblical truth is held in high regard in a culture, people embrace anarchy and idolatry. But blessed and happy is the man who keeps the law of God, who abides by its instructions and follows its direction. What do we find in Psalm 119 as a metaphor that David uses, and I, as a kid, I remember that I, I, I have it memorized in the King James, so pardon me for a second, but thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light into my path. It's a direction of life. That's what the Torah is. That's the law of God. So that's the point. When there's no regard for biblical truth, when there's no, um, no societal uh, apprehension being arrested by the law of God, when none of that happens, well, anarchy happens. Idolatry happens. Now, in the Old Testament, Hebrew poetry was the primary weapon in the prophetic arsenal. Hebrew poetry in Proverbs and all the, all the major and minor prophets, Hebrew poetry was their primary weapon. When the prophets of God were sent to Israel and Judah, their job, their task was to preach the law of God. That's what they did. But their preaching was done in two central ways. Using this poetic discourse, this preaching, there were two components to it. Two components to prophetic preaching. There was prosecution and persuasion. Prosecution and persuasion. Um, Just to reiterate, Jordan had mentioned this book earlier, that book by D. Brent Sandy, um, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, I, it really changed my life, and that is not meant to be sort of this overstatement, shock and awe thing. It really did, because what D. Brent Sandy does in the book is he, he helps shape how you view Hebrew poetry, um, and, and frankly, at that point, I was still a rabid dispensationalist, and so for me, I took everything literally. There's a literal dragon coming out of the literal lake, you know, this sort of thing, and D. Brent Sandy rescued me from that error. Because there is a way in which we should understand poetry and symbols and all these things that the book of Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets, how they use these words. And if you have that, the Jewish apocalyptic understanding the way that he argues you should, and I think he's right, it actually changes a lot for you. So I do highly recommend you get it. And um, he goes into a lot of that quite extensively. So the two things. Prosecution, persuasion. The first part of the preaching of the prophets was prosecution. 
Prosecution was simply this invoking of the curses of God on a disobedient nation. That's what they do, right? This is better known as a covenant lawsuit. That's what the book of Revelation is as well. This lawsuit was simple and their preaching was direct. Here's what they would say over and over again. Here is God's law. You know God's law. You were given it, right? You, you know what it is. This is the objective standard. And this is where you've gone off course. And so now these are the charges that we are bringing against you. So quite, quite literally, they warn the people of God through putting them on trial. Their, their warnings were that of a prosecuting attorney of God. That's what they did. So repent, turn back to God, follow his law word, or be cursed. That was their prosecuting message. These oath-bound prophets, they served as God's attorneys. Uh, Their job was to remind Israel of the covenant, demonstrate where and how things went off the rails, and then they warned them about the consequences as well. That's the first part. The second part of prophetic preaching was persuasion. So we have prosecution, we have persuasion. Oftentimes the, the prophets, even like John the Baptist, they're viewed as sort of a bunch of doomsday weirdos who do and say strange things which they do to some degree. But the prophet's job wasn't to simply pronounce judgment in terms of negative sanctions. They were also there to persuade Israel to repent so that they could then uh, experience the covenantal blessings of God. So whether it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea or Amos, Habakkuk, any of the, any of the prophets they all of them fulfilled their responsibility to be a prophetic witness with, with this truth-telling, truth-abiding witness to the people of God. That was their job, to woo Israel back, back to the covenant, back to God, back to the blessings of the covenant that they had forsaken. Now, why bring that up here? I mean, aside from the fact that the word vision there is clearly insinuating the prophetic vision, the frenzy that you see unfolding before your eyes right now in this nation is this verse on full display. The, the, the absolute mass hysteria unfolding before your eyes right now in this nation is this verse happening. It, it's astounding to me to see the left. Donald Trump, President Trump, will send out a tweet and the news cycle is gone off the rails Uh, Twitter (laughs) one thing it's amazing and it might not even be something controversial but it goes against maybe what they think and so it's just chaos ensues we have a bedraggled culture that doesn't know which way to go we are quite literally progressing towards further regression we are progressing towards further regression That's where we're going. It's what um, Van Til called this disintegration into the void. It's this downward spiral of unrestrained anarchy, a loss of public sensibility, a loss of political liberty, a loss of moral stability. America right now is what being unrestrained looks like. Without vision, without the prophetic word of God, people are led away They're drawn away from God, and thus they become agents of Satan. We are then tempted to become idle. We are tempted to become lustful, join in the party. And we are sometimes tempted to become impotent, powerless. 
People perish. They are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Listen to Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Talking to Israel. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Had the people of God known the true and living God, known him, um, known him by covenant faithfulness instead of covenant apostasy, they would have avoided God's sovereign judgment. And, and listen, we know God. How, do you, how does one know God? Well, you know God when you fear God. And when you fear God, you love him for who he is. And the only way that you can truly love God for who he is is how? What did Jesus say? By keeping his commandments. A suppression of, of this truth leads to a lack of knowledge, which leads to divine judgment. Now, a question for you to consider. What is the controlling principle for all of life? What is it that's the controlling principle for all life? If someone were to ask you that question, what would you say? The controlling principle for all of life is the law of God. The very thing that isn't preached, isn't read, and isn't considered. The the direction and instruction for all of life is the law word of God. That's what it is. It's, It's the way, it's the truth, and it's the life, which should sound quite familiar to you. Jesus said that about himself. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus being the governing principle, the Torah, the direction. He is the direction to the Father, and he is the direction for how men should govern themselves. And how's this for gospel-centered preaching? Jesus is the only true law and order. And what we must do is proclaim this king and this priest in every area of life, we talked about that yesterday with my boys. We were talking about every area of life. What does that mean? Does it mean that you know we should press the crown rights of King Jesus into all the birds that are outside? <laughs> sort of, you know, nail them down and give them a little Jesus? I don't know. Seems morbid. But it's the idea of us seeing Jesus for who he is and, and having him dictate and direct our lives. See, our task, like the task of the prophets, is to persuade and to prosecute. We usually don't think of it in those terms. But, but all of our judgments, and we are called to judge, all of our judgments must coincide with God's judgments. We, we must see the world as God sees the world. Only when God's people are compelled by God's Spirit to impress upon the entirety of their lives this fixed law word of God Will any law and order come to a society? I'm going to say it again because I, want you to, I don't want you to miss this. Only when God's people are compelled by God's Spirit to impress upon the entirety of their lives the fixed law word of God will then any law and order come to a society. Which means that we have to be first in the repentance line. And I love that during our, our, our worship gatherings together, when we do our prayer of confession we do it well, which, you know, is good because we sin well. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we tend to cover all the bases, which is good because we can't, we do not want an Aiken situation here. 
there's sin in the camp. Somebody did something, and it's jacking with everything else because we have enough of that going on. So we have to be first in the repentance line. We must be first to acknowledge that the unrestrained devolution of our society is actually our problem. It's ours to fix. But we cannot fix it if we leave the main tool of our prophetic witness. So it's not enough. It's not enough to have the ministry of the Word of God behind the four walls of a church. We have to pursue it. We have to love it. We have to treasure it. We have to adore it. We have to teach it. We have to teach it to our children so that you kids can abide by it as well. And then we have to push it out into the world. And the only way that's going to happen is if the church deploys its calling to saltiness. And that's it. Meat in Bible times, was only preserved by salt. You leave the salt out, the meat rots. And and what we must not do is blame the meat. And this means that we have to, we we must pity people who do not have the light of the gospel. It should be a, a pitiful thing, not an arrogant thing. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he said this in chapter 9, verse 1. He said, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. It's easy for our prophetic witness to become this staunch insistence that blind people just figure it out. We we tell them to see when they can't see, and then we tell them to go somewhere when they're actually dead in their graves. Which is why, as theonomists, we absolutely love gospel preaching. We love it. We love very much the ministry of the Word of God. And we know that in order for the dry bones to come to life, God must raise them. God does the raising, not us. And we must preach to them. And this is why knowing God's Word and loving God's Word and doing God's Word is absolutely essential. It's inextricably tied to our calling. Man depends on God to speak. We speak because God speaks. Jesus is the divine speech. He is the logos of God. He is the word, which which means that instead of us giving ourselves over to our lusts, and thus we sort of just go along with the flow, go float down the river with the sewage that is our culture, we have to insist on God's prophetic vision, his revelation. We must instill in ourselves and in our families and in our churches and cultivate this love for God's Word so that we can be blessed and so that society can walk straight, which is a challenge, isn't it? Here's the situation. We have unhappy Christians and unhappy churches led by unhappy preachers, and all of it is because they don't love, keep, proclaim, and practice the law of God. They don't preach the law. They don't expound upon it. They, don't, they do not love the law of God. They are allergic to anything that smells like the law of God. But the inverse is also true to this. Any happiness in Christians today, in our churches, and even any happiness that are in our pulpits is sometimes, I would argue, most of the time foreign to the Bible. Now, here's what I mean. Happiness in today's postmodern context means following one's heart, right? Do whatever makes you happy. 
Now, doing whatever makes you happy is only good advice to the degree that it's obedient to the law of God. But the happiness that most evangelicals experience today is coffee time with Pastor Skinny Jeans, which is followed by this compelling eight-minute Hillsong ballad. And that's what we think. And that's why we view Sunday as a drug where we go and we get our spiritual high, sort of that injection, that feel-good, Osteenified message, right? I just made his name a verb. Adjective. You can do it all, I guess. But this sort of thinking is a massive, massive problem. And I'm not saying you shouldn't feel, you shouldn't have emotions. This is a problem, though. And it's a problem not because we are trying to be these unpleasant fussers about everything, but because we're deeply concerned. Here's what our concern is. We are deeply concerned that we are trying to be blessed in all the wrong ways. We're trying to sort of just cook up our own formulas for what it means to be Christian, for what it means to be the covenant people of God. And we're doing all of it. We're doing all of it as a bunch of whiny brats who think that knowing God's word is just too dang hard. Since Peter says that judgment starts with the house of God, it is very much appropriate that we be extra careful to examine ourselves first, to make sure that we are not being destroyed for a lack of knowledge, to ensure that we, the church, are not seeing the unraveling in in society, the unraveling of society, because we have failed to be happy in our obedience to God's law. But that is what has happened, and that is what is happening now. Listen, whenever... Whenever society's law changes, know that the gods are being swapped out as well. Behind this facade of external factors lies this exchange in religious worship. We are living through an unbelievable time of history, a time of great social upheaval. And anytime there is social upheaval, it's an exchange in worship, an exchange of gods. So we murder our children in the womb, we inflate the money system, we tax people into poverty, and we have a bloviating state providing cradle to the grave security. We do not recognize, generally speaking, in our society, we do not recognize the difference between God and men because we're too busy thinking highly of ourselves. We cannot, we don't know the difference between the two genders, this binary system that God has given us, And the reason is because we don't know who God is. And we don't care who He is. Because we are Him. That's what we think. So we the church is guilty too. We don't we don't understand God's grace. We don't understand God's law. And because of it, and because of the church's rejection of the law of God, society has let her hair down and cast off any semblance of decency. That's what this verse is teaching. Morality in the public square is directly linked to how God's people keep the law of God. That is Proverbs 29, 18. That's what it says. So instead of his social order based on God's word, spurred on by a church who cares about justice and so on, we have this social order that's based on humanism, and now we have bathroom confusion. And what we cannot do, what we must not do as God's people is be hypocrites about it all. We must not point the finger out there until we have pointed the finger in here. So that means quite a bit. It means that our families and our churches have to be recovered. 
We need to stop with the atomistic family nonsense and build trustee families. We need to stop pawning off our kids. I saw that recently in a, in a store, lining up, buying all these supplies for the kids to go to public school, and the mom's just sort of checked out. And I'm like, she's checked out already. She's checked out of her job. We have to recover our families. And we know that the scripture is very clear that it establishes one law and one Savior, one instruction, one direction. And it's Jesus Christ and his Torah. And we must embrace it in all things. So instead of casting off restraints, we must be restrained. Restrained by God for God. And we will do none of that until we love the gospel of the kingdom. So do you love it? Do you love Christ with your affections, your attitudes, your actions? Do you husbands, do you men love God's word? Do you long for, like a deer longs for, water? Wives, ladies, do you love God's word? Children, do you love Jesus Christ? I trust that you do. The need of the hour is a recovery of the biblical prophetic witness inside the church and outside the church. A robust vision of the law of God, a robust preaching of the gospel of God. And I pray, cross and crown, that we can contribute to this through our witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the reality is we are standing in a heaping pile of trash and it's our fault. We have abortion on demand and our justice system takes bribes, the things that you hate. Our fathers and our mothers have carted our children off to Caesar instead of building a true family. And instead of doing that, we've splintered the family and thus we've destroyed your covenant. The pile of trash is there because your church has left it there. Instead of cleaning it, we found it easier to just pitch our trash in as well which means that we lack repentance. And until you grant it to your church, we're going to continue building on the pile. We need your help desperately, Lord Jesus, and we need it now. We need repentance, and we need you to open the graves and raise our dead friends, our dead families, and our dead neighbors to life. So please, Lord, do it in your wisdom, do it in your power, and do it in your timing. We ask this humbly and boldly in Christ's name. Amen.